Hey friends, I'm Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, we chat with Curtis Solomon about PTSD. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Dr. Curtis Solomon is the Executive Director of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. He holds several advanced degrees from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and is also an Air Force veteran and former employee of the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. His military background inspired his doctoral research on post-traumatic stress. Curtis is certified with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors and serves as an adjunct professor at Boyce College, visiting professor at various institutions, guest lecturer, trainer, and conference speaker. He and his wife, Jenny, were married in 2003 and have two delightful sons. Hey there, Curtis. Thanks so much for joining us for the show today. Yeah, Christine, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Well, before we get started in our conversation, would you take a few minutes to share why you're passionate about speaking and teaching on the topic of post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this really important topic. And uh, before I say anything, I want to say that a lot of my background will be from a military perspective, but, but trauma is a life experience. It's not limited to any particular career field or or group of people or anything. It is a lifetime experience. Uh, many people throughout the world and throughout history uh, undergo intense, intense suffering and end up facing post-traumatic stress. Uh, but for me personally, it was rooted in military service. I'm, a, I'm an Air Force veteran myself. Uh, my grandfather was an Army and Air Force veteran. My dad was an Air Force veteran. So um, serving in the military and and having a heart for the military community opened my eyes to see a very prevalent struggle among many of our nation's hero warriors uh, of post-traumatic stress. And then in addition to serving in the military, after I went to seminary, I actually worked at the Department of Veterans Affairs for a few years as a veteran service representative, representative helping veterans process disability claims. Mm-hmm. And I saw um, so many men and women coming through who are struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder or lots of other, uh, you know, what are described as mental health issues, some of them genuinely mental health, others really spiritual issues. Uh, and having been trained as a biblical counselor, I thought, man, I, I wish we could do more to help these people or, or we could point them to God's solutions for their for their problems and and address the spiritual concerns that they have. But the Department of Veterans Affairs, obviously being a uh, the federal government and a secular institution, that wasn't really possible in the in the role that I had. So when I decided to go and do a, a, a PhD in biblical counseling, I knew if I could, post-traumatic stress would be something I would love to research and to learn more about, think about how the Bible addresses it and how we can help people. Uh, so that's just a little bit of why I'm passionate about this topic. 
when you have taught on this topic at a previous IBCD conference, you made a statement about this extremely painful kind of affliction not being, quote, a disorder. Would you put some context around that statement and explain why it's helpful to reframe the way we think about post-traumatic stress, both as the person who is experiencing the symptoms, but also as biblical counselors? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I want to say for those people who maybe work in clinical, the clinical background of that kind of thing, I understand why it's labeled as a disorder and I understand the the need for that in the sense of, especially if you're working in a hospital or, or treatment facility where insurance is involved in those kind of things. And obviously the DSM labels it as a disorder. So I understand why it's called a disorder and it's it's disruptive to life. It's a challenge. It's difficult. So they call it a disorder. But my primary concern is not necessarily for the mental health system or for insurance companies or those types of things. My primary concern is for the people who are actually going through this experience. And one of the things that I've seen and working with the Mighty Oaks Warrior Program and other groups that help men and women who are struggling with post-traumatic stress is that the the label disorder does a number of things to that person. It gives them, it's robs hope because if you if you see it as a medical issue entirely and it's described as a disorder and then the medical community is saying that there's no known cure then it's it kind of robs you of hope that there's any solution that that you can move forward uh, and see progress in your life but an, another aspect of that that is really helpful is is helping people see that this is not necessarily an abstract or abnormal response to normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. This is a more normal, very, or I would say at least prevalent response to really difficult and really trying circumstances, really extreme circumstances. And what that does is it helps people understand that they are not weak. They're not broken. They're not freaks. They're not whatever these things are that, that they can begin to identify themselves with because they're struggling with this issue. Taking it and reframing it that way is not a disorder, but as, as a more normal or prevalent response to really difficult uh, extreme circumstances really helps begin the healing process, reframes their thinking about themselves and the world and even God and and how they are responding to life and what that means about them. So building off of that then, Curtis, would you offer us a brief definition of post-traumatic stress and the various symptom clusters that are associated with the label? Sure, sure. I'm going to give you a kind of a working definition that Dr. Charlie Hodges and myself have been bouncing back and forth with each other that tries to look at things from a more biblical perspective than than rather than merely the the DSM diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But we also understand that the people who work in the psychological community have spent thousands of hours working with individuals and they have lots of experience and they've identified certain patterns that are prevalent among people who struggle uh, after going through a traumatic experience. So we want to recognize that, but then bring in a more full-orbed biblical understanding to it. So our working definition, which is even being modified as we speak, uh, is post-traumatic stress is a whole person response to traumatic events that encompasses the physical, mental, emotional, behavioral, and spiritual being of those affected. It results in significant disruption of life at home, work, school, church, in the community, 
It draws on anger, fear, sadness, shame, and guilt to disrupt family relationships, friendships, careers, and Christian service. Those who are affected will often compensate the best way they can in ways that may compound the struggle they face. But when addressed in a God-honoring way, it can be a tool in the hands of God for great good, helping the individual become more like Christ and equipping them for greater service in the kingdom of God. So that's a, a long definition. Uh, when you talk about the symptoms uh, that people look for that help identify the, the, and would actually lead to a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, you're looking for four main clusters uh, of symptoms. So the symptoms can look different, but they're identified in four groups or what are identified called clusters. There's mm -hmm. intrusion symptoms. These are flashbacks, uh, intrusive memories, uh, somebody reliving the experience of the trauma. People are pretty familiar with that concept of it, though in, in movies and television shows and stuff, they'll try to depict it as the person kind of zoning out or freezing up, and then they have a, a dream sequence where they're remembering the trauma that they experience. And sometimes it looks like that, but it can be, can be something as simple as you hear a sound or you smell something that, re, that reminds you of the trauma, whether you're aware of it or not. And it can cause an anxiety type reaction. Your heart rate can accelerate. You start to sweat, you know, other physiological responses. Uh, those are all parts of intrusion symptom clusters. Mm -hmm. Avoidance symptoms is another cluster. That's what, where people try to avoid relationships or circumstances that remind them of the trauma or that could potentially be triggers that cause this threat response uh, to activate Another cluster is negative alterations in cognition or mood. That means that can be anything from just people having a bad mood, being quick-tempered, that kind of thing, uh, depression-type symptoms, or just thoughts, really negative thoughts about themselves, about other people, about the world, about God, uh, all of those types of things where somebody's just always focused on the negative uh, can can be involved in that. And then alterations in arousal reactivity, that's often hypervigilance is what people will use, the term that people use to describe that. It's where somebody is, they have an exaggerated startle response. So if they hear a loud noise, they jump more than somebody who hasn't struggled with post-traumatic stress would. Uh, if somebody touches them, especially from behind, they, they're going to react more aggressively or more fearfully than somebody who wouldn't be struggling with this issue. So those are the, the four clusters, intrusion symptoms, avoidance symptoms, negative alterations in cognition or mood, and alterations in arousal reactivity. Curtis, as we're either the person who is suffering these intrusive symptoms or the person who is trying to care for the person who is suffering, mm. You know, I think when I've heard you speak on this topic before, you have mentioned that there is a tendency to withdraw and isolate. Mm. Maybe some of us are wondering, why is there that tendency to, to recoil away from from loved ones and from even sometimes society in response to the various overwhelming symptoms that are being experienced? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple reason, a couple main categories of reasons why people withdraw or avoid contact with other people. The first is because there's oftentimes a lot of shame that's tied up with post-traumatic stress. There's actual guilt of somebody who is struggling with this because of things that they've done, and they believe that if people really knew what they had done 
they would think they were a monster and they don't want to be around people because they don't want to people to know who what they what they see that they're really like what they've done and and who they are on the inside there's also shame tied to the sense of feeling weak like they are broken that they are that they have something wrong with them. And so they, they don't want people to see that and identify that. And so they try to avoid being around people because they feel shame tied to the distress that they're even going through. Uh, then there's just the shame related to, you can't really talk about sometimes in public, the things that they have undergone and the things that they have seen, the things that they continue to see again and again and again, the things that fill their minds from sometimes, uh, you know, one veteran, he was talking about, coming back from Vietnam and he's just said, you can't, I can't go to a party. And if I share with people what I saw there, they would all look at me aghast and run out of the room because it's not polite conversation topics. Right. Uh, uh, some of the things that people have undergone or seen or been through or done. So the, all of that shame is one thing. I mean, all of us hide, right? Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, we hide uh, because of shame. And sometimes that shame is, uh, that guilt is legitimate because there's been sin involved, but other times it's it's not. It's just something that's been done to you, you know, if, especially for women who are victim or anybody who's a victim of sexual assault, there's a shame that comes along with that that is not, they're not responsible for. Uh, the other side of it is just the fact that when somebody is going out and about through life, there are many uh, what are defined as or described as triggers that will activate the person's threat response system, the fight, flight, freeze, or faint response system that we had, that God built into us so that we can respond to threats. And what will happen is, is sometimes you can identify those triggers very easily. It's like, well, being in a crowded area that can, so people, and oftentimes that is one because people will uh, feel fearful in a, in a crowd because there's a sense of lack of control that they can't protect themselves. There's too many threats around. Or like I mentioned before, it can be things that, that people haven't even thought about or identified. I've heard different people talk about just the, the side of a particular color vehicle, the side of trash on the side of the road, uh, seeing a particular cartoon character, a smell of whatever. And if you're going, I mean, if you just imagine walking down the road or driving down the road and pulling into Walmart and going into shop and you're just going to shop like a normal everyday person would do to pick up your groceries. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, without any warning, you just start having uh, massive anxiety or you're having a panic attack or you're threat response, you know, your spidey senses are going, you're tingling and you feel your, your heart is pounding, you're short, you're short of breath. Uh, and you just, and you don't know why. Well, none of us like to feel that way. And if it's happening to you all the time and, and you can't control when it happens or why it happens or even understand why it's happening, you're going to want to avoid those circumstances. And the more that somebody experiences that and the more places they go where they have those types of sensations and feelings, the further isolated they're going to become because it's going to cut off more and more relationships, more and more places that they don't feel comfortable going. So, I mean, if you just try to put yourself in somebody's shoes, would you want, if you were, if you thought that people looking at you would be able to see your most shameful truths uh, about in your heart or everywhere you went, you we're having a panic attack or entering into an extremely fearful state, uh, 
wouldn't you want to hide? Wouldn't you want to be safe? Wouldn't you want to go somewhere where you could be by yourself and not experience those things? So those are just a couple of the big, broader reasons why people tend to isolate uh, when in reality what they need is they need community. They need relationships. They need other people. As we mentioned before in the definition, it's a compounding problem because the, the solution oftentimes to isolate leads to greater, greater trouble. I actually heard you present on this topic live last year at the CCEF National Conference, and your session was titled Preparing for the Worst, Helping First Responders and Military Personnel Develop Spiritual Resiliency. And I thought that it was such a fascinating and heartbreaking topic that I had never even thought of. I mean, you even alluded to in your answer just before about sometimes post-traumatic stress is the result of something that we've done and not something Mm -hmm. that has been done to us. And I've never, because I've never been in that situation, I I don't have a military background. and, And so that never even occurred to me to think of it that way. And so I wonder if you might tell us a little bit more about that, why these particular professions are especially vulnerable to the damaging effects of trauma. I guess both the first responders who are seeing the things that are going on and, yeah. and, and absorbing that, but then the military personnel where sometimes they're being called to do things that are traumatic. Can you help us, I guess, maybe spend a few minutes focusing on these two professions in particular? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it really comes down to just almost a mathematical reason. I mean, qu- quantity-wise, if you think about people who are going to struggle with post-traumatic stress have to be exposed to trauma. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, trauma is everywhere. You think about uh, the experience of Eve or Adam, whoever. I mean, think about what it was like to find Abel slain, laying on the ground, Noah, Joseph, Jonah. I mean, all throughout Scripture and then all throughout life, you think about the traffic accidents, Uh, natural disasters, crime, all of those things, those are all opportunities where people are exposed to traumatic events or potentially traumatic events. But military personnel and first responders, by the nature of their job, are more likely, uh, just percentage of time-wise, more likely to be exposed to trauma than people in other professions. You know, if you're a statistician and you go to work every day and you work on a computer and you're analyzing spreadsheets and stuff, the likelihood that you're going to be exposed to a bombing, a shooting, a natural disaster is far lower than with uh, military personnel or first responders. So the I think actually, and I, th- I talk about it in that lecture as well, that we can do a great job as a church to prepare everybody with what we would identify as spiritual resiliency, to prepare them to face suffering, to face trauma well, and respond in a way that is resilient. And there's a few different ways resiliency manifests itself, which I'm not going to get into right now. But I encourage pastors, and I've, I've, I've talked about it before, that my pastor, when he's taught on suffering and the fact that suffering will come and we should expect suffering and God uses suffering in our lives for our good and our glory, I said, thank you for helping my boys be better prepared to handle suffering in the future. Like there's a preparation that we can do with people. And that's what building spiritual resiliency is for. Uh, I just, we focused on first responders and military personnel because they're the jobs that they voluntarily take in. They're more likely to uh, experience those things in those career fields. So that's why, that's why we focused on that. But it is, it has broader general application to, to everybody. 
You've said when you're dealing with somebody who's been in a traumatic experience that involved someone else or themselves, there's a lot of questions running around in their minds about guilt, responsibility, mm. and forgiveness. Can you explain what you mean by that statement and how the gospel of Jesus Christ helps us to process through those questions? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, like I mentioned before, shame and guilt are significant aspects of this struggle for many, many people. So when somebody comes to you and they're they're laying out their past and the trauma that they've been through, they're going to have questions about who was at fault? Was I at fault? What responsibility do I bear? Questions about God and his responsibility as well. And they're going to, they're not going to necessarily know who's at fault and where the blame should go. And that's one of the things that they're wrestling with. And you as a biblical counselor, can, first of all, do a couple of things. One, I really appreciate Dr. Steve Weyer's book, Putting Your Past in Its Place. And he has a, a diagram tool in there where he helps people break down the question of an innocent past versus a guilty past and an innocent response. You know, your response, a guilty response to an innocent past or an innocent response to a guilty past. If you, And it's it's a little hard to, to, to share on an audio podcast. <laughs> but basically, you're going to try to help somebody as much as possible decipher out who is responsible uh, and who is not and what guilt do they bear and what guilt do they not. And if if you can identify something that they are clearly responsible for, this is where we can step in and help where the secular world has no solution. We can present the forgiveness that's available to them in Christ through their repentance and forsaking of that sin and pursuit of reconciliation where possible and coming under the shed blood of Christ that forgives all of our sins. And the at the end of the day, and this is one one thing I leave, it is helpful, and I don't, I don't jump to this part when I'm talking to somebody because they have legitimate questions that are really bothering them, and I want to help them wrestle through those. But at the end of the day, there are going to be certain situations where we can't always decipher who was guilty, who was innocent, mm -hmm. how much fault was mine, how much fault was somebody else's. And the beauty of the gospel is we're not required to do that. We don't have to know every, you know, it's it was 30% their fault, 70% mine. 100% of it is covered over in the blood of Jesus Christ. So yes, walking through those specific questions that they have, because that's what you want to do as a counselor is understand the person who's in front of you, what their experience is and what, what is challenging them and, and address those questions as, as well as you can and with as much truth as you can bring. But at the end of the day, when you, you, can, you can rest in the grace and the comfort of Jesus Christ, that all of it can be covered by the blood of Jesus. So it's it's really encouraging and hope-giving to the counselee. It's encouraging and emboldening to the counselor to recognize that there is, it's 1 John 1, right? That there is nothing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no sin or no difficulty that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cover. And when it's somebody else's fault, we there's also hope for them to receive forgiveness and grace, and we can have an opportunity to be a living example of the gospel to them in certain circumstances when it's appropriate. So 
I hope that addressed your question, but if you have further follow-up questions, I'm happy to happy to clarify or, or answer any others. No, that was great. And I'll take this opportunity right now just to let our listeners know that Curtis has spoken at IBC conferences on this topic, uh, very extensive lectures that we have available for free as audio resources. And so if you're interested after you listen to this podcast and you want to hear more from Curtis on this topic, you can click the link in the show notes that will take you to a page where you can access links to the various resources we have available and you can continue to learn more about uh, all the things that Curtis is talking about today and regarding the topic of post-traumatic stress both for caring for sufferers, but also I believe there's a message on helping family members who are caring for sufferers. Um, so just it's really great stuff. And so definitely make time to check it out if you're interested. Curtis, I want to ask you, because this topic is really complex, again, going back to your definition of post-traumatic stress and the fact that it is a whole person experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we might think that God's Word doesn't really have a whole lot to say, but you say that God's Word doesn't remain silent about these kinds of experiences. So can you offer us one or two biblical narratives that you turn to in counseling when you're working with sufferers of post-traumatic stress? Sure, sure. And I want to I want to clarify, like, in one sense, it is very complex, and I don't want to minimize the challenge that, that is there. But one of the lectures that you'll find on the IBCD podcast or website is the Demystifying PTSD, where um, I, I really try to make it not scary for people, mm-hmm. both for the person who's struggling with it and for the, the counselor. Like it is in one sense, it is a, a whole person experience. So it is complex in that. But the Mighty Oaks Warrior Program that I've worked with and did my study on in my PhD, when they talk about post-traumatic stress in a week-long intensive, like these guys go to a camp and are there for a week, the topic of PTSD directly, how they actually address the the diagnosis and what it is, is a 45-minute lecture. And that's it. So in one sense, it's complex. But the, the, the other side of it is that the solutions are not that much more complex than what you are going to be experiencing. Like it's there are straightforward teachings in scripture that you can really see a lot of hope and help for somebody. I think there's some help in value of getting trained on just how to be sensitive types of questions to ask, even how to set up your room so that it's comfortable, you know, more inviting to somebody struggling that way. That that stuff is good, but I don't want to, I don't, don't want people to walk away thinking this is so complex I could never address it. And part of that is the fact that God's word does address, address it so well. You, you asked for a couple narratives, so I, I narrowed it down because as I mentioned before, I think you see trauma actually all throughout Scripture, but a couple couple narratives that you can go to that I really think help put flesh to First Corinthians ten thirteen, uh, which is a vital truth for somebody who's been through trauma to to grapple with and to grab a hold of is the fact that no temptation has taken you except that which is common to man. That sounds impossible or foreign or even insulting to some people who have gone through some of the most intense and evil suffering that this world and human beings can throw at them. They don't feel like and they don't believe that other people understand what they're going through, what they've been through, what they've seen or what they've done. So helping them understand that not only do other people do it, but Scripture has people who understand, who've been there, who've been through the suffering they've been through and come out on the other side. So Joseph, I think, is one of the great, great stories. And actually, I think Dr. Charlie Hodges did a lecture where he walked through the entire life of Joseph 
and, and how he uses it to address somebody who's struggling with post-traumatic stress. And I believe that's an IBCD resource as well. So be sure to check that out. But Joseph's life, if you, if you think about all the different things that were done to him, he was, you know, his brothers, when they threw him in that, in that hole and then eventually sold him to slavery, if you read the text, it says that they actually wanted to kill him. And the only reason one of his brothers stepped up to say, let's not kill him, was a self-serving motivation. So there was no love for Joseph in this moment. It was just hatred and you're not, and not a stranger, but your family turning against you and betraying you and wanting to kill you and eventually selling you into slavery. And that's one of the elements uh, uh, that's true with people who struggle with post-traumatic stress is if you're attacked by a stranger it does it it can still impact you but when you're attacked or betrayed by somebody who's supposed to love you care for you provide for you protect you like a a pastor a teacher a coach an authority figure a parent the impact to your soul is far greater and you can help them see joseph knows what it's like to be betrayed by his brothers. And then he's thrown into prison. Uh, he's mistreated. He's falsely accused of attempted rape and all this other stuff. And you just see all of the evil that was inflicted against Joseph and, and definitely the trauma that he went through. And then at the end, he's able to say what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So Joseph's story is a very powerful one. David and Saul are actually really great narratives that I like to use, especially with combat veterans, because uh, sometimes guys uh, who've been in combat, maybe they went to Sunday school, maybe they didn't, but oftentimes their view of Scripture and Christianity is like, that's for really nice, clean, neat people, and it's not really for me. I've actually had guys who said, you know, one, one guy who said, well, I have to put my faith on the shelf because I've got to go actually do what I need to do in, in Afghanistan God can't see that kind of thing. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's a, that's not a nice Christian thing that I have to go do. It's like when, but when you actually show them in scripture, you know, David was a guy who mutilated the dead bodies of his enemy right. for a dowry. You know what I mean? Like, and those are the kind of things that we think about now, like that would be a war crime in our day and age. If somebody went through and, and, and mutilated the genitalia of, an, of enemy combatants, they would be thrown into prison. Mm -hmm. David did that. David committed adultery. David murdered. David shoved swords into people's bodies. He threw stones into the skull of a giant. Like he saw, did, and experienced combat. And just helping these guys see, man, this guy knows what I've, what I've been through. This guy has seen what I've seen and done what I've done. And then you go to Psalm chapter six or other Psalms where David is describing the inner anguish and turmoil that he's experiencing, being up at night, crying himself to, to sleep, soaking his couch with tears, concerned about the enemies that surround him, wrestling with these things. Those connect with people. And like I said, it, it brings flesh to the truths that God's word has answers. God loves them. He knows their experience and then he goes through them. And then the best of all, the most of all, which I lead to eventually is Jesus. Mm -hmm. And, and Jesus, as we know, we know, again, sometimes the, people have this fairy tale vision of what the scriptures are and who Jesus is. Like he was this ethereal floating, perfect guy who never, and obviously sinless, but their vision of what perfect means is very different than maybe what the scriptures actually describe our Savior as. And he was mocked, betrayed by his, mocked by his family, forsaken and betrayed by close companions, 
tortured brutally. If people were doing to other people what they did to Jesus today, there would be massive, massive outcry of injustice, and we need to stop this type of behavior. You know, when ISIS beheads somebody or these other terrorist groups torture people, it is horrifying and horrible, and we rightfully cry out against it. But what Jesus went through was tantamount to that and worse. And then he, not only was he betrayed and tortured, he was falsely accused, falsely condemned, tortured mercilessly, but he has the internal turmoil, the weight of the sin of the world on himself, which none of us can fathom. And these brothers and sisters who've gone through trauma, yes, there's physical difficulty oftentimes associated with that, but it's the internal weight and wrestling with these things that they they are struggling with the most. And to help them understand that Jesus knows what that is like can be life-changing for them. And then to see him executed in one of the most horrific ways that humans have invented to execute people, and it's accompanied with public humiliation, you know, being nailed up naked to a cross on display for the world to see, and then have God the Father turn his back on him. I mean, we can't fathom that depth of suffering. And then to turn around and show them that not only can Jesus understand what they've been through, he can under because he's been through worse than they've been through, but that God uses that for good. Like that is what ultimately we can show them is that God is in the habit of his MO, his, his mode of operation is to take wicked, evil, bad, horrible things that humans do and are done to them and that happen as a result of living in a fallen world and turn them into amazing, good things. And as I mentioned, every time I can when I'm teaching on this, the greatest good that has happened in all of human history was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it came through the greatest trauma, the greatest suffering that was ever inflicted by human beings on another human being. And so connecting that story of Christ and the gospel to their story, not to make them feel like saviors of the world, but to help them understand God, he understands and he has a purpose and a good intention behind the suffering that you've gone through can be radically life-changing. When somebody ends up at the place where they say, you know, where was God? Where was God when this traumatic thing was happening? How do you answer that? Yeah, that's a that is a really great question, but it's such a difficult one because it's so different and so unique to each individual person. Uh, because when I'm addressing that issue with somebody, I have to have a lot of background information first. But you know, if, are they coming as a as a professing believer? Do they come with an attitude of hatred to God? What are their views of God and all these things? So uh, it really depends on so many different factors. Uh, that it's hard to give one one specific answer, but I think it's an important question to a- ask. And there are actually there are actually some times where people don't ask that question myself, but I'll bring it to their attention because part of what we want to do is we want to help people understand. We want people to experience and perceive the world the way that God does, mm-hmm. and we want to understand and help them understand how they see themselves, how they see God, how they see the world, and other people and then help them shift whatever is inappropriate in that thinking to a 
to biblically appropriate, accurate, God-honoring view of those different things. So sometimes when they're going through all this, they might not even bring up the question and all ask, where do you think God was when this was happening? What, what, it, what were your thoughts of God at that time? And as you've looked back from now to that point, what do you think about God? How do you feel about him? You know, those kind of questions to get them churning and wrestling with that question, because at some point it's going to come up or it should come up. Mm-hmm. And so when it, when it does, whether it's I've instigated it or they've come with it. And like I said, depending on lots of different factors, let's say for the sake of ease and argument that it is somebody who's a professing believer or is a believer, I've, but they're wrestling, they're struggling with how could God allow this? Where was God when this happened? It's helpful to recognize that that is a that is a question that we've been wrestling with forever. I mean, it is the problem of evil, right? But it's we can't address it just as a theological issue to debate because this is a human being whose faith in one sense could be hanging in the balance, right? We understand mm-hmm. that if somebody puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they cannot lose it. But we've seen lives that where somebody seems to have been walking with faith and then trauma is what draws them away from the Lord and, and they end up walking, walking away. Uh, and I believe first John two nineteen that they were never really part of the faith if they never repent and return. But anyway, without getting into all that, what I'll do is I'll just, I'll ask them clarifying questions. What did they believe about God at that time? Where was God? And then I begin to identify where their statements are accurate and where their statements go contrary to what scripture teaches. And then when that in gentleness and love and patience and compassion, point them to the passage of scripture that, that identify the fact that no, God was there. He does love you. These things are true. And in, in a sense, I mean, definitely challenge them, but in love and in a, Mm -hmm. in a good way, challenge them. So is God's word right? Or are your perceptions and your thoughts and your feelings right? And then, and I'll also ask good questions, or hopefully good questions, to dig into what does that mean? Like when you say you don't believe that God was there, why? How does that affect you? What does that do to your faith? How does that in, how does that impact your experience of your relationship with God? How does that impact your desire to move towards Him? How do you feel? Because sometimes if people are really wrestling with this, they aren't running to God. They're angry at God. They are walking away from him, not towards him. So we want to begin to to shift them in a direction that's going to, with their affections, their beliefs, their desires, and their behaviors, move them towards God and not away from him. And then I'll ask the question, so if he was there, which scripture says he was, and if he is sovereign, he is good, and he desires good for you, how do you see God working this for good? And again, Romans 8.28 is somewhere we want to go eventually. I don't rush to it right away with people, move towards it sensitively and carefully, and there's no set pattern or time frame of how to do that. It's really, it really takes a lot of discernment and wisdom that you have to ask the Holy Spirit for. But getting them to that point, because helping them ask that question, okay, God's Word says that God was there, says that He loves me, says that He has my good in mind— says that he uses all these things for my sanctification. We have to teach them what that good is and then help them identify what are some good things that you have seen or could see coming from this 
this trauma and this difficulty. And some of the common solutions or common answers to that or, or ones that we can point them to if they're struggling is the kind of pay it forward idea. Second uh, Corinthians chapter one, that we've experienced affliction and God's comfort so that we can then comfort others who are in other affliction. That idea and that concept is really powerful for people who've gone through trauma, whether it's combat trauma, rape, natural disasters, assault, whatever. If they can see the ability to turn around and use their their experience and their life to help other people, that is a, an extremely powerful uh, motivator, giver of hope, giver of purpose, and something to, in some cases, something to live for. Other things are, I'll ask specific things, because I point out to them that good in Romans 8 that we've talked about is making you more like Jesus. That's the good that God promises. So how does your experience make you more like Jesus? And, and walking through specifics that you see in their life or maybe that they see in their life of how going through suffering can make them more like Jesus. It makes them more compassionate. They can identify with him in his suffering. It makes them humble and dependent. It makes them kind and loving, or it can make them kind and loving. All of these different things, you can begin to see the ways that God is using. And so it just helps them put into concrete reality the abstract notion that God is good, he loves them, and he's working all this for their good and his glory, uh, really walking through that. And and I've seen a lot of people that have been very blessed and helped by those kind of conversations because we just have to face reality. And, and there are times where people will say, yeah, well, I don't, I don't believe God's word then. If that's the kind of God that we have, then I don't want anything to do with him. And that's, that's grievous. It's sad. Uh, it happens sometimes. But when the Holy Spirit is working in somebody's life, no trauma, no difficulty, no argument can keep them from coming to know him and growing to be like him. So we are dependent on, rely on, and trusting in the Holy Spirit to be working through us and using us in the, in the lives of these people. And more often than, than not, with believers who are wrestling with those questions, when we start getting into the nitty-gritty of those experiences and pointing out those goods, they find encouragement, comfort, hope, healing, and growth through those things. Since we have time for a couple more quick questions, I want to ask you, in one of your IBCD talks, you started to go and drift into this direction of how God can move sufferers from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic sanctification. And so I wondered if you might expand on that uh, just a bit for us. Yeah, yeah. I think, one, it's just a really helpful uh, memory tool to help people see that they because when we focus on the distress and the disorder side of things, we can have a, it can push us to have a very negative outlook on life. But when we, when we see that God is at work, when we see that he's changing us, when we see that we still have purpose and we have a greater purpose even, then it helps people understand that God is using it to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. So it goes back to that conversation I'm having with people and actually challenging them and encouraging them, not just when we're together, but to continue throughout their life to think about how God is using all of the things in their life to make them more like Jesus, including the trauma that they've been through. And uh, just another point on that that um, that came to mind when you were, we were talking about 
the second Corinthians passage of being able to serve other people, trauma sufferers get a faster door open to other trauma sufferers than other people. Mm-hmm. This doesn't mean that you have to go through tra- some traumatic experience in order to minister or counsel people who, who have, but if you have, that will open that door so much faster. And I've, I've shared before with their particular counselees who in the process of our counseling, they didn't even come in for like trauma related issues, but it came up that they had been in really abusive relationships or abused in the past and stuff. And the part of the reason it was able to come up, one is just asking good questions uh, and having intake forms that have those types of questions on them. But I shared whenever I see somebody mark on there that they were abused in the past I'll share my own personal story of being abused as a child, uh, not by my family, or but by a, a, a family friend who molested myself. And that opens the door for them to share their experience in a, in a more comforting way. And I've just had people tell me, listen, I would not have shared with you if I didn't know that about you. But I knew that you had some idea of what I'd been through. Uh, so I was willing to share that. And that, seeing that opportunity that, Man, what somebody else intended for evil, God intended for good. Uh, to for me to be able to minister to other people, that is part of His sanctification. That's part of His purpose in my life and part of His growth. So helping people move, get their attention and their eyes off of what was done and what was, but what to what can be and what God is doing and what the future can look like is that part of that process of shifting from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic sanctification. How can I? be growing and actually be better on the tail end of this uh, in a sanctified way than I was before. And and when you can shift people's thinking to that, it's very helpful in God-honoring, glorifying, and, and the direction we want to be moving. Well, Curtis, we have time for one more question. And so I'd like to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who has been diagnosed with PTS and maybe they've suffered the same symptoms we've discussed today and they're feeling hopeless about experiencing meaningful change and healing. What would you say to this person to encourage them that there is hope and help for them through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah, the first and first and foremost thing is I want to say I am deeply sorry and grieved for you and with you that for whatever the experiences that you've gone through, and I don't know what it, what that is, but trauma is hard. And so what you're experiencing, what you're suffering is difficult and challenging and hard. And I don't want you to feel extra weight or guilt or shame because you're experiencing this and other people aren't, or any, any of those lies that, that the, the enemy might be tempting you to believe and that your life would be better if you weren't here. Everybody else around you would be better if you weren't here. Those are lies from the enemy. Don't believe them. The truth is that God loves you and he wants you to know his son and grow to be like him. And he can do that with you. I've seen lots of people's lives transformed. And the uh, the biggest thing is you are not alone. You have, first and foremost, you have God and you have Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, 
Uh, secondly, you have family and friends who love you and care for you and want to help you. Lean on them, rely on them. For those who are family members of this person, I encourage you to check out the book by Greg Gifford, uh, Helping Your Family Through PTSD. That will give you some good insights to, to come alongside this sufferer and minister to them, love them, care for them, and, and walk with them through this difficulty. Uh, the other thing is you're not alone. You have the church, the body of Christ. Yes, there will be some people who, who are knuckleheads in there. We're everywhere. Uh, and they might not always say the right thing, but there are people in the church who genuinely love you and want to help you. And God's word has answers and they can, they can help walk with you through this thing. Don't try to do it alone. And then there's other great agencies out there, groups that, that will point you to help in Christ. I've mentioned multiple times the Mighty Oaks Warrior Program for any veteran, active duty service member, or first responder, you can check out their program and, and get help there. But talk to somebody. Uh, don't remain silent. Don't try to deal with this on your own and don't hide. Go to a, a trusted pastor, shepherd, advisor, somebody, and share with them your struggle and ask them to walk you with you through this. And, and they can get all the resources. They can listen to all those things, whatever. But there is hope. And as I mentioned before, Jesus Christ, more than anybody else, understands what you're going through. He knows your heart. He made you, and he knows what's happening in your past, present, and he knows what can be in the future. And there is hope for a wonderful, purposeful life ahead that honors God and you, sees you growing and sees you doing good in other people's lives. So uh, there's just a, f- a few things that I would want to share with that person. Well, thank you so much for sharing those encouraging words. I want to let the audience know, where can they connect with you online? If, if they're interested in your ministry and, and the resources that you have available, apart from what we have in the resource library at IBCD, where can they connect with you more specifically? Yeah, well, first first of all, is I'm the executive director of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. So checking out the website, uh, biblicalcc.org. Uh, there's thousands of great free resources there for people, not just on post-traumatic stress, but on tons of things, because uh, the coalition is really made up of lots of biblical counseling leaders and biblical counselors who volunteer time and energy and effort to put out those great resources there. Uh, you can also, if you want to connect with me personally online, I'm on Twitter at CW Solomon is my Twitter handle, whatever that is. Uh, I'm not, I'm not a... 24-7 tweeter kind of guy, but I'll be on there periodically, and you can connect with me there uh, if you want to reach out personally. Uh, but the Biblical Counseling Coalition's website is where I would steer you to to connect with great resources, a great ministry, and other great counselors. You can find them there on that website as well. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us for this really important conversation. I'm, I've learned a lot. I'm really thankful that you took the time out of your schedule to share biblical wisdom on this painful yet not uncommon topic. And so just again, thank you for, for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely, Christine. Thanks for having me. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.